Hi, welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Kauke. I'm delighted to have Jay McBain, who runs the analysis for Forrester in the area of channels, partnerships, and has a great background, uh, both as an entrepreneur and corporate man. So Jay, over to you. Tell me a little bit about your background, how you got here, the role you have, and your involvement in channel research. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Uh, I've been in channels 25 years. I started with IBM running channels as a country manager. I moved over to Lenovo, ran channels as part of the Americas group, did that for 17 years. I moved on to an entrepreneurial run, built channel software, started with channel social software for collaboration, moved over to channel mobile, having mobile portals and, and other types of things. And finally, with channel artificial intelligence trying to predict what partner is going to win what deal at what time, focusing on the channel account manager, focusing them on their next best action, some predictive and prescriptive analytics that the data might suggest better or different behaviors than, than what they were planning on doing that day. Really interesting. And I joined Forrester last June as the analyst globally for partnerships, alliances, and channels. So that raises a great question in my mind, which is what are the mistakes you see people repeatedly making that the predictive analytics was able to pick up? Yeah, it's interesting when you put data and you look at the entire history, not only of the partner themselves, but the people within the partner, you look at the salesperson, the channel salesperson, and you look at their entire history, but you look at other factors. You look at the customer, for example, that you're working on the industry that they're in, the geography that they're in, the type of buyer that, that you're dealing with, the segment, the sector, the size, you look at the part of the technology stack. So you start injecting a lot of internal information into algorithms. And then interestingly, you take external data. So there's over 200 sources out there publicly that leave a digital trace about your partner. You mash all that together and there's some interesting things that jump up. And one of the most important one is timing. I know in making channel sales work, it mentions this. It's amazing that there comes a point in the partner journey, in the customer journey, that channel account managers don't pick up on. So what is it that drives them to be so myopic? Channel is inherently complex. The average channel program that we look at and we, we study thousands of these around the world, has 90 different components to it. Wow. And, and what you end up having is a, is a channel salesperson that's juggling 90 balls in the air at one time. And in a lot of cases, they're mediators and, and trying to make everyone happy and, and, and trying to chase things. And it, when they're this busy and with this many balls juggling in the air, they don't tend to assign each of those tasks and stack rank them in terms of importance and pick out some of the sales clues and triggers, we seem sometimes a very linear approach to solving each of these 90, as opposed to you know, focusing on what's important. When you say 90 different components, are you talking about 90 different opportunities, 90 different channel partners? 90 different parts of the program or 90 different parts of your daily life. Right. So an example is finding new partners, recruiting them, onboarding them, training them, certifying them, incenting them, motivating them, driving loyalty, co-selling with them, co-marketing with them, managing them, all the way under those banners. There's a lot of details that are you know, up in the air at all, at all times. And, and, so, and that's then multiplied by the number of partners that you have. 
multiplied by the amount of partners and multiplied by the amount of opportunities you have within those partners. Okay. It's one of the most you know, complicated jobs. It's one of the most complex. There's not an MBA for channel sales. There's not a, there's not a education course that you take in college to, to help you pick out what those clues are, what the triggers are and help you format your day and format the ranking on how you would approach all of these different things. I'm delighted you said that because we're just in the throes of formalizing and structuring that. It sounds like it's required. I've been working in sales for 30 years plus, 10 years recruiting in sales for tech companies, the last 15 years working with organizations that sell through the channel. And there seems to be a depressingly low expectation of channel managers. All too often what we've seen is that Tim nice but thin, the, the person who is socially good but not necessarily great in sales and they've probably failed in a direct sales role. They get given the role because they don't want to fire them. But what harm can he do? Why do people do this when we're talking about multi-billion dollars? You gave some World Trade Organization statistics. It was 75% of all global trade goes through partners. Across all 27 industries. Why, why would anybody put Tim Nice but Dim into a role that is as complicated and as critical as this? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I, I've written about this for about 10 years. Right. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the progressive progression of, uh, of channel salespeople and and channel leaders. You know, I've done a study on channel chiefs. I, I looked at over 500 channel chiefs around the world. And I looked, you know, where do they live? How did they progress their career? What is their gender? What is their age? What is their education level? How many companies have they worked on in their career? Where did they start? How much time have they spent in their current company and current role? Are these people that somehow came out of college wanting an indirect sales career and progressed it? Or did they come from somewhere else? And the short answer to all of that is that most of them came from a direct sales role. Yeah. And, you know, I from my time at IBM, and, and, and I like your analogy, but we had direct sellers that, you know, may not have been hunters. When you didn't categorize as a hunter, you wanted to make everyone happy. You were a mediator. We like to have you around. We like to have you at the Christmas party, mm -hmm. you know, gal, good guy. They'd be perfect in the channel. Mm -hmm. So that... That idea that it's not exactly farming, but it's more the mediation. It's, it's the personality that you could handle angry partners and, and maybe settle them down. If there's conflict, you might be good at handling that. But the things that make a channel person good, juggling these 90 things in the air, being able to handle the permutations and combinations that come along with the role, really don't fit and not, aren't usually part of that conversation when converting somebody over. So tell me this, what are the habits that great channel chiefs possess and execute? Yeah, so it was interesting. Uh, there was a Harvard Business Review article written and, and I thought it was fantastic because it enunciated it much better than, than I could have. They studied around the world in multi-industries, really high-performing channel leaders. And there's this idea that you convert your best direct salespeople to sales managers. You convert sales managers over to channel people. And there's a disconnect. The conclusion of the article is that great channel managers and great channel leaders, channel chiefs, are more like CEOs. So your ability to be a general manager and knowing that channel has 
finance, operations, marketing, sales. And in one hour, you might flip between every vocation. And you're managing a lot of things. You're delegating a lot of things. A great channel chief would make a great CEO and a great general manager. Whereas in the sales arena, the opposite is the case. What makes you successful in many cases is your ability to focus and hone in on, on, on a number of smaller and more defined tasks. Maybe your personality in terms of you know, being able to close and, and be able to move through a buying journey more specifically. So very different skills and it cautioned about moving your direct salespeople over to be channel people, cautioned you from taking a vice president of sales and making them vice president of channel in a number of things. I, I thought it was really well done and helped frame the, the differences for me. You, you mentioned when we were preparing that you had developed 10 quantitative metrics for predicting and measuring channel chiefs. Do you mind sharing a couple of those with us? Yeah, I'll share them all. So we looked at uh, around 550 successful channel chiefs around the world. Okay. And first, we looked at geography. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote a piece which was called the 10 rules to guarantee a promotion to channel chief. The number one rule is to live in California. So, <laughs> uh, and this was mostly a, a technology um, yeah. industry yeah. Uh, play, but a quarter of all technology chiefs live in California with yeah. 6% of those living in San Francisco. Okay. Two is that I, I looked at the churn, calculated the average lifespan of a channel chief. It ended up being 3.1 years, okay. which you know seems very fast, but there was a bifurcation there. So if you took out the Fortune 500 sized vendors, the 3.1 years if, is, the, is the total across all channel chiefs. If you remove the Fortune 500, so let's say the top 20 vendors, like HP, Dell, IBM, Cisco, et cetera, it actually drops to 2.1 years. So in the mid-market space, you've got a very high churn rate at the channel chief level. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, gender-wise, it's 77% male. The age, average age of a channel chief is 49. There was a pretty tight cluster of the bell curve around the mid-40s to mid-50s in terms of age for channel leadership. It was surprising that three-quarters of channel chiefs do not have a graduate degree of any type. There's a few that don't have college degrees, but it wasn't a direct relation to say that, you know, higher education leads to higher channel sheets, which was, which was interesting. And they have street smarts. They have street smarts. And where they got that, the research shows that the majority of channel chiefs move around to get to the level they are. So the average number of companies to achieve that role was 4.8. And each time moving from a, a rep level to a, to a director level to a vice president level, the average moves across companies was 4.8. So leveraging new companies to get a promotion. The larger companies had people that may have started in the mail room or very low in the organization in the inside call center and worked there you know, 20 or 25 years to reach that level. But in most cases, it was you know, leveraging moves from, from company to company. Very interesting. You mentioned that the churn rate was 2.1 for the majority, 2.1 years. Certainly in the UK, we see very high churn rates within direct sales. So the average salesperson is probably in post. Um, and by that, I'm talking about average, which isn't necessarily very good. 
about 12 to 18 months, typical direct sales manager, 18 to 24 months, sales directors, certainly less than three years. And in fact, CEOs, very often we see less than three years as well. What are the predictors of success in role? When you're recruiting and you're looking to recruit a channel chief or a a top channel player, what should you be looking for in the interview process? It's a, it's a great question. And there's a lot of qualities that, that make a good channel chief. And, you know, we talked about some of the psychology that makes a good channel chief, but things that you could spot within the resume, there's things that you can spot, you know, within the LinkedIn, for example, and somebody is on a career path and they're moving every couple of years. It's a very dangerous thing in a channel because as you know, it takes six months to find the bathroom. Yep. (laughs) Uh, the next six months, you basically declare everything before you a disaster. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you start to put in new programs, new processes, new automations, new workflows. You start to build it. You buy. So there's a hundred pieces of channel software that you can buy spread across eight different categories. But you start to implement new systems around, around the different parts of the channel program. And you do that over the next six months as you start to implement it. At the 18-month mark, you're basically looking for a new job. You've called your recruiter, you're interviewing, and then you're in that final stage. And by two years, you're already moved. Channel chiefs are not seeing these projects through. They have no idea whether there's been a return on invested capital or not. And the hard question as an interviewer you should be asking is, with all these moves, how could have you impacted the channel and had success that's demonstrable based on the system you put together? making a bunch of changes and adding a bunch of automation. And, you know, it sounds good and it looks good on a resume. looks like you're a change agent. looks like you're, you know, one of these disruptors. But the fact of the matter, if you've never had a role, let's say for five years and been able to see the impacts, be able to work partners through their different journeys, it's dangerous to hire these people moving around. Have you ever read Snakes in Suits by Robert Bebiak and Bob Hare? I haven't. They came up with the psychopathy index and they identified that 3% of prisoners on death row are clinically psychopathic, but 5% of the US boardroom. What I'm reading from this is that because of the way corporate America and the tech industry, certainly, but a lot of Fortune 500, FTSE 350 are structured, there is a culture where people turn up, drive the machine, and then leave before they got, get found out. And some other poor chap has to pick up the pieces as it all starts, the wheels start to come off. What's the average tenure in post of a player channel chiefs? That's the overall is the, the 3.1. We're seeing at larger companies and people that have very high feedback uh, among partners and tend to, to, to win awards and, and things like that. We're seeing that higher as 4.8 years as a, as a tenure. And that's why I said five years as a magical. We're not expecting people to be a channel chief for 15 because you may get a little bit, you, know, you might grow some blinders and you may lose a little bit of your uh, spunk by, by that time. But, you know, I think five years is a, is a good. It also provides some consistency and predictability for the channel. And as you're giving feedback and there's a lot of partners uh, around the world that are tired. Uh, you know, it, it's just, they're, they're on this cycle and, you know, every two years they can predict it now. Okay. okay? New person in six months to find the bathroom. They're going to start asking me, you know, as part of a partner advisory council, 
I'm going to give a bunch of feedback. They're going to go implement a bunch of stuff. And then by the time it gets implemented, that person's going to be gone. We start the cycle all over again. The new person finds the bathroom and declares a disaster. I'm going to be invited in. And so after 10 10 years of going through this cycle five times, partners are just, they're at the point now. They know they're going to get a new channel account manager assigned every year, every two years. They know the leadership's going to change. If you're selling 10 different vendors and this happens at this pace, your expectations are so low that you're not even mad anymore. Okay. Again, let's take this a little bit further. Who do A player channel chiefs surround themselves with? Who do they take advice from? Really good channel chiefs, I've done a study on this that I'm publishing right now. It's really interesting. They have a very broad view of the market and many of them take their partner's view of the market. And so what we did is we went out and asked three questions and it's a community-based question. What do your partners read? Where do they go? And who do they follow? So a good channel chief will understand that, I'll use a technology example again, there's 16 major magazines There are 150 annual trade shows, webinars, podcasts, vodcasts, and then there are super connectors that that, that are high influencers in in this market. So I've studied the people that roll up into these communities. And in the technology world, there's 31 communities around the world. It's highly decentralized. The largest IT association in the world covers less than 10% of the channel. The biggest magazine in the world covers less than 10% of the channel. So they're very decentralized. Super connectors understand that to influence the most partners, you have to be involved. It may not be 31, depending on the type of partners you're looking for, but it's a big number. I've looked at, and I follow about 5,000 different channel leaders. And I look at every event around the world, who is keynoting, who sits on the board of advisors, who are the magazines writing about, putting on the front cover, who makes these top 100 lists that they all put out, who is talking on the webinars, who's running the podcast. If you answer all those questions, and then as you see somebody twice, you kind of give them this virtual check mark. As I follow 5,000 people, I sort the top 100. I publish it. It's on jmcbain.com the 100 most visible channel leaders. And these are people that across these 31 communities, they're engaging. And when I see the most successful, and by the way, the person that came at number one is a channel chief, and he works for a company that is 100% channel. And he understands, he, he doesn't know the, the academic side of what he does, but in his gut, he knows that when he shows up to an event or does a webinar, and, I mean, he looks at the audience and he looks for new faces. And he understands that, you know, if he travels 31 times to 31 different places and he sees new faces every time Mm -hmm. in his gut, he knows that he has to have this wide aperture of coverage. No channel manager that's successful that I've ever seen grew up with this idea that we have to just find three things and hit home runs. The best channel managers that I know, and it goes against everything I was taught at IBM. Oh, it's okay to, instead of three go after 31 and hit singles. And the best channel managers are really good. And I'll use an American baseball analogy, but the the best channel chiefs are the ones that are out hitting singles and creating partners at the widest level. So this then brings me to the next question. What are the beliefs that an A player typically has other than you've got to spread the net wide, you've got to hit the singles? The beliefs 
that they have, they're really good, whether it's, again, you know, somewhat quantitative or academic, but they're really good at segmenting the audience. A lot of the speeches I give on this future of the channel, you know, next week at Salesforce Dreamforce, I'll be in front of thousands of people talking about the future of channel sales is the title of my speech. But we draw out a future of what partners look like. There's some big trends that are, that are happening. One is that the buyer is changing. There's demographic shifts that are happening. Not sure if you know, but 75% of channel managers in six years will be millennials. So there's a demographic changeover that's happening in the industry. Uh, this is at the partner level and the channel manager level. So the brand level, as well as the partner level, there are a new buyer, the, the shifting buyer, for example, in the technology industry, two thirds of all decisions now are made outside of IT. So line of business executives are now the new buyers and traditional channels are having a challenge getting in front of these new buyers, understanding where they come from, understanding the level of what I call hyper-specialization to be successful in front of these new buyers. But what it's doing is generating a brand new set of channel partners. Every company in every industry is becoming a technology company. Every service firm in every industry is also becoming technology firms. So whether it's accountants, legal, architects, digital agencies, all kinds of ecosystem partners around the cloud, born in the cloud partners, startups, ISVs, software vendors, there's all kinds of new channels and an A player will recognize that they're different and they don't fit in the traditional gold, silver, bronze program. They don't fit in your construct. So you always have to be innovating basically serving these new segments. It's adapt or die. Um, exactly. You've raised a number of issues and I want to try and bring all this together in, in my thinking. One of the things I'm very conscious of is that technology firms historically have been guilty of drive-by shootings. Every three years they'd come, they'd say, well, that time you got some more licenses and there wasn't that level of contact or connection. And certainly, you know, the SAPs of this world and, you know, th those sorts of players have had a tendency to behave like that. And as technology has shifted, they've moved over towards the cloud, software as a service, and they've been forced to sell outside of IT. But again, many haven't been able to adapt, which is why they're dying. A very good friend of mine who sadly died a few years ago, a guy called Jerry Lember, and he used to define entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Um, I think one of the challenges is that technology companies have historically often over-engineered and over-created the product. They've tried to sell tech and the, what you've talked about is this shift away from selling to IT and into the line of business. To my mind, that creates the need for a very different type of partner salesperson because they have to get out of IT and into the business and the channel manager has to be able to help them through coaching, through training, through the deal midwifing process, enterprise selling tools. I'm curious what trends you're seeing out there in terms of tackling all of that, because that to me sounds like a hell of a job. It is, and channel salespeople are being pushed given these new types of relationships that are out there. Think of influencers, advocates, alliances, these are companies that are partnered with you that don't have a financial transactional link. So this is not something that's a traditional reseller who gets a front end margin, a back end margin, participates in the programs, and then you check off all the boxes. 
this is very modern. The new buyer looks a lot like a consumer. And these are not Instagram or YouTube type of influencers that, that we read and, and laugh about, but it's pretty similar in terms of managing people that may not get margin. If there's no financial linkage to somebody, how do you drive motivation? How do you drive loyalty? How do you drive, how do you educate them? How do you get them to the point where there's enough to be dangerous? And how do you do that at scale? So you talked about SAP and I've been plugged into SAP for quite a while. They're participating in all these new cloud areas, CRM and, and marketing automation and and places where their competitors understand the ecosystem approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we mentioned Salesforce, Dreamforce is next week. There's 180,000 people walking through those walls at, at that conference. It's now the biggest wow. software conference in the world. Yeah. And if you talk to those people, they're all living in the gig economy. And what they understand, there's one number that Mark Benioff gets on stage and says every year, for every dollar that Salesforce sells, there's $4.14 of opportunity for you. And so he talks about an ecosystem and he's trying to grow you know, Salesforce to let's say 50 billion in five years, and which means there's a $300 billion ecosystem. And he talks the ecosystem number, not the Salesforce number. What's interesting is then they go the next step because Salesforce doesn't have a traditional program. It's mostly direct, but the opportunities it creates downstream they are very specific about the installation, implementation, integration, security, compliance, business continuity, all the things that go around it and the opportunities. And by the way, most of this business is at 75% margins right now. It's the richest technology margins that are available today for a channel salesperson. Wow. So it's highly millennial, high, high services revenue and, and, and margin. So you look at an ecosystem and if you're a channel professional working around Salesforce, you're not talking gold, silver, bronze. You're not trying to bring somebody in at this level and and move them through the cycle. What you're dealing with is, is more celestial in nature. You got stars and moons and you know, there's, there's millions of things. There's no way to handle them all. You don't have a spreadsheet big enough to handle them all. But what you're really good at is when that star and moon align five minutes before that happens, You get with that partner, you get with the customer, you're aligned throughout the process and you make sure that they're educated to the level they are, they're incented to to drive you home. All those 90 parts of the program actually happen in rapid fire and you work with them through that few weeks or few months to, to win the deal. And when that star and moon get unaligned, you win the deal, they go off and maybe spend six months with the customer so you don't see them again for six months or a year. They're not a regular transacting partner, Mm -hmm. but your ability as a channel salesperson to be flexible, adaptable. It's this idea that you're working almost in in real time as these things are happening. When you disengage from that one, you jump into something else and you rinse and repeat. This is really interesting. When we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, the emphasis was really on helping people who are building a channel for the first time or they're relatively small. It's, and we, we segmented it on the basis that you sell with a partner or through a partner. The with model is Capgemini working with Dell and or IBM or whoever. The sell through model is at the smaller end. What we were really conscious of was that very often people go on a land grab. They try and recruit dozens or hundreds of partners. In doing that, they leave the partner 
wanting because the partner is coin operated. If, they, if they're not making money within the first 90 days, they're probably going to go dark on you. And all that effort in terms of recruiting, MDF, uh, training, onboarding, if you did any, and that's the other piece that has flabbergasted me over the years, how little effort people put into the onboarding process to make sure that you're training your partners how to sell your stuff. Because too often the emphasis is on product knowledge. In terms of the future of channel and channel sales, how do you see great A-player channel managers role evolving to become more of a coach, more of a trainer, more of a developer, and being yeah. a real partner? And, and more in real time. So what we're advocating today is there's really a parallel channel program that you're building. There is a set of, let's say, resellers, and this goes, this is not just technology. I mean, this is in every industry. You've got, you know, a very defined set of distributors and wholesalers and resellers and bars, managed service providers, whatever they are, yeah. that follow a certain path. And it's linear. And those are the 90 different parts of the channel program I talked about. And, you know, the onboarding has to be personalized. You onboard the the, the owner principal is different than the salesperson at the partner, which is different Absolutely. than the sale uh, the tech. How to get highly personalized at scale is the challenge on that side of the, the channel program. Yes, it's okay to have a gold, silver, bronze. It's, a, it's okay to tier it. And that's how you manage. And th those channel programs are somewhat plateaued. And they're driving a big chunk of the revenue and they are what they are. On the other side, and you talk about an A player, how do you handle a celestial approach? There's so many things happening. So if you're SAP and you know that the average buyer buys seven layers of technology to solve their business problem, and unlike the past where SAP would be the million dollar foundational part of that, mm -hmm. in this case, it might be Salesforce or NetSuite or Marketo or Workday. I mean, it could be something completely different. And SAP actually is somewhere else in the value chain. Right. So in a million dollar deal, they could be the $20,000 Leonardo AI part of the deal. Right. And core part of the deal. So instead of, and you know, IBM suffers from this and a lot of the big vendors of the past is you can't fill up a plane full of salespeople to go win the deal when you're at $20,000 add-on. Mm -hmm. You gotta start focusing differently and think about the buyer, think about who they've invited into the room to help them yep. buy the, the, the solution. And are you, in this case of SAP, are you influencing the influencer? So the Salesforce ecosystem partner, that millennial that we were talking about, is in the room. Do they know the trigger words to bring SAP into the conversation? Does the accountant, CPA, who 81% of them now do tech services, right. are they thinking SAP at the same time? Uh, the other seven ISVs, independent software vendors, today there's 100,000 ISVs. What is the influence on SAP in terms of building on, around, adjacent to their stack? And are ISVs walking into that room with the buyer saying, okay, you need my stuff, but you also need SAP stuff? Yeah, I can't help SAP with their traditional program. It's been running for decades. Mm -hmm. You tweak it, you, you perfume, perfume the pig every year and <laughs> new and exciting. But the fact of the matter is that's not where their growth is going to come. Yeah. When I went to SAP's conference, there wasn't 180,000 millennial gig players walking around. 
there was Capgemini and there was Accenture and Deloitte and, you know, they know where their bread is buttered. But the fact of the matter is in the new economy with the new buyer and the new sales process, they're not looking outwards at the stars, at the celestial approach of, mm. of, of things aligning out there. They're very much myopic back into their traditional program they have had for decades. This is music to my ears for the simple reason that what we've realized is that too many organizations are selfish in their selling. They're very eye-centered. And the way I'm seeing things evolve is that you have to put the customer front and center in everything that you do. You exist because the customer exists. Everything that you do, I'm not talking about putting the customer on a pedestal, because um, if, if anyone knows Sandra, we're not about that. We're all about equal business stature. But it's making sure that you really understand it, that you're asking the right questions of the right people in the right way at the right time, that you're coordinating, making sure your cross-functional sales team of lawyers, accountants, marketeers, technicians, uh, salespeople are all speaking to the right counterparts within both the partner and the end user. And that you're really bringing value that technology has had so much of a stranglehold historically because people didn't know it. And it was a bit of a dark art. When you were talking about uh, your AI product, you know, Burn the Witch came to mind in terms of all the stuff that you were doing. You know, we're talking about complex decision structures, the high cost of pursuit. We're talking about complex buying structures with wide and diverse buyer networks, sophisticated competition. If the channel manager isn't able to manage all of that with the customer right at the heart, then chances are they're going to be leaving a low, you know, $4.14 on the table. They might pick up the 14 cents, but they're going to miss out the bulk. And I'm curious here in terms of what you're seeing as trends in the market that are going to help them to identify those opportunities and capitalize on them instead of leaving all that money on the table and leaving the end user and the partners wanting? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's a research question because uh, you, you talk about customer, uh, you know, being at the center. And, you know, when I talk about stars and moon, I mean, the center of the universe uh, in this case is the customer. Again, not on a pedestal, mm -hmm. but it does revolve. So, if you ask questions, and you know, I know Sandler is really good at asking questions, you should be asking a lot of questions. If two-thirds of every one of the decisions, if, for example, SAP again, if two-thirds of every technology dollar is now happening in the line of business, mm -hmm. you know, ask your partners, are they talking to the right people? And then you know that these people spend 68% of their time building the solution without any salesperson's help. By the way, that's almost as close now to consumers, I think, spend 73% of their time. So almost like you buy a car and build it online and take it to the dealer, and then the process breaks after that. You, as a B2B business, line of business executive, are doing the same thing now. You're using Google and peer networks, and you're using all the tools at your disposal to build your seven-layer cake to, to solve your problem yeah. before talking to a salesperson. The second thing is, the new buyer is more direct oriented. So the cloud has driven a new economic model where this whole single throat to choke or you own a customer, you're the trusted advisor, you know, you've heard all these things in the past, that's all been blown up. No one owns a customer anymore. 
when line the business and there's 10 lines of business have five different channels each and there's 50 different people, you know, driving digital transformation at a customer, there's no one throat to choke there. Mm-hmm. It's all project based and it's participating in, in these projects. So understanding that there may not be resell. When you're buying a product for $19 a month per person, you know, the single bill now is the credit card, the mm-hmm. departmental credit card. Those value chains have gone away in, in the cloud. So if you're SAP, you've got a new buyer, new buying behavior, new buying architecture, infrastructure. And then the final thing is these new buyers, 80% of them are reporting that the salesperson is not specialized enough. So this is the same number, by the way, is the broken you know, car buying experience. Uh, absolutely walk in and know exactly how the internal combustible engine works and how much are in there. And you've got the color picked out. You've got exactly what you are. And then you meet with a salesperson. They're back on square one. Then you go through this broken thing where they go to their manager and try to get you a deal. And I mean, they're feeling now that other industries are in this broken car buying process. I think this is down to human behavior. When I was in recruitment, the thing that fascinated me was 80% of the salespeople I was interviewing to move jobs were leaving their manager, not their job and not their company. 80% of business owners do not buy from an external because they don't feel that they understand their business. As human beings, our primary drivers are to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And what, what I'm fascinated by is how often um, sales management is so focused on the process that they forget that they're dealing with basically herd animals. You know, we haven't really evolved in the last 350,000 years. I think we've probably gone backwards uh, because now we've, we can be lazy and five strokes of our thumb and we've got the sum total of human knowledge. As you describe all of this, I'm seeing that a, a channel manager needs to be a project manager. They need to be fantastic at building relationships up and down the food chain within both the partners and the end customer. Their currency is influence and trust without power. They don't have the stick to beat or even the carrot to beat the, the partners with. They need to be able to make sure those, their partners are comfortable enough to let them in to speak to their customers. But like you said, no one owns it. This is like a game of you know, uh, Sheldon Cooper's 3D chess. We, 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 we need to spend more and more time developing channel managers. And I'm conscious we're coming up to our time. So as a final thought, if someone wants to pursue a career in channel sales management, what would you suggest are the principal areas that they need to develop in themselves as they move out of direct sales and they start to move up the food chain? What what are the principal areas that they really need to invest in themselves over? Yeah, so first I would start with uh, a much more analytical approach. To scale something, I mean, you can do anything once. You know, to do that same thing, you know, a hundred times with a hundred different partners is a different skill set. So having a data-driven approach, looking for data insights, you know, based on history, based on external, having systems help you scale, you know, your behaviors, I, I think that's one thing that, that, that's missing today. And in many cases, looking at the career progression, you don't have channel leaders coming out of finance or coming out of data analytics and you know, analytical type of, type of background. So anything at scale, 
anything at the celestial approach that we've been talking about takes a good grounding in, in that area. That's number one. Uh, number two is this realignment of the customer that, that we've been talking about, the, the new buyer, really understanding that buyer. And I would add one thing to, to your list of what they need to be good at is psychology. Yeah. And understanding the, the buyer and, and the buying cycle and, um, and, and what they're looking for in, in terms of specialization. I did the math. And when you look at this new world where it's not industry-based anymore, it's sub-industry. And there's 297 sub-industries. It's not just healthcare. It's mid-sized ambulatory care clinics with 50 doctors. <laughs> the new buyer, there's 10 lines of business, all with a different language, all with a different you know, set of pain points. There's obviously different geographies. If I'm going to sell to that mid-sized clinic over in the UK or in Canada or in one of the states in the US, very, very different regulation, legislation, compliance. That's third. The sector size and segment of the customer. You know, selling to an SMB, like a 50 you know, doctor clinic is different than a big dentist office or a small hospital. Very different in terms of their resources and their challenges. And then finally, knowing that it's a seven layer cake, it's a stack. There's not just one part number that you install and wipe your hands. It's a very complex thing to integrate. Mm -hmm. And again, permutations of doing that. There's millions of different per permutations. But when you multiply all those five things together, there's 35 million conversations. And, you know, as a salesperson, you're not going to be trained and you're not going to try to memorize 35 million different things. So what you're going to do is you're going to draw, draw out your heat map and figure out the places that you do really well. The partners you work with, the deals that you've won, the things that you work on really, really well and really hone in on that and go win 80% of everything within that cell of the heat map. Then move adjacently. You've done well in this geography, move over to the next country, move over to the next state, whatever it is. You've done well. It's a 5% swing. Yeah. yeah. So go adjacent, you know, move a geography, move a buyer, move the technology stack, like move slightly outside of your, go to an adjacent cell and build out from a core of strength rather than being all things to all people all the time. Jay, I would love to continue this conversation. I'm conscious you've got another meeting that you have to go to. So thank you so much. It's been utterly fascinating and compelling. Would you like to give the listeners your details of your website and a couple of publications that maybe they could read that you've produced or research that you've produced? Yes, sure. Uh, they can go to forrester.com, look for Jay McBain, link in with me is probably the best way. I have links to all the different areas and, and things I've wrote about these subjects there. Brilliant. Well, thank you again, Jay. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor podcast saying thank you for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Jay, wow. Bloody brilliant. Um, wow. I mean, I, I, I've let's, done a lot of research on this, but you are the bee's knees. Um, let's, uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, please. Uh, what, uh, if we give it maybe three months, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll send you a calendar invite um, sometime in January. Sounds good. Yeah. Good luck with your um, speech next week. And um, if you've got those 90 um, different areas uh, that you can uh, point me to, I'd love to uh, have a gander at that because we're putting the program together and I want to tailor it. If you Google, do you want to be a channel chief? Do you want to be a channel chief? Okay, yep.
that gives uh, all 90 things on one chart. Fabulous. And, uh, it's a tongue-in-cheek Rodney Dangerfield view of channel. You'll okay. probably like it. Um, I've also, yeah, I've got some other things as well that, uh, oh, the Harvard link that uh, I'll have yes. to send over. To you Thank well. you. Um, when we produce the uh, draft content for the course, uh, would you be okay uh, casting your eye over it? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Thank you. Top man. Thank you ever so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.